0: So if you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're finishing up this incredible sermon of Stephen uh, here in Acts 7 that we've been working through for about five or six weeks, and we're going to wrap it up this morning. We're in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through verse 60. So this again at the end, the completion of Stephen's sermon, here's what he says as he's finishing up. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Dear God, our hearts are humbled to read This account of Stephen who preached his heart out, who pointed to Christ, who called out his listeners for their sin and their rebellion, and who gave his life as a martyr for the faith. We're thankful this morning that we have the opportunity to look at both his sermon, but also to get a glimpse into heaven this very morning, to see what Stephen saw when he saw Christ standing at the right hand of the Father And I pray that this morning as we wrap up this message and as we think about the observations we can make from the text here, that our hearts would be encouraged and that our lives would be strengthened and that our resolve would be greater than ever to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ who even stands for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, as you see, the title of the sermon this morning is, What Makes Jesus Stand? In our passage this morning, we're learning that while Stephen was being stoned, he gazed intently into heaven. And there, he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so my question to you this morning is, why was Jesus standing? In many places of the New Testament, Jesus is described as being seated at the right hand of God. Jesus himself, quoting from Psalm 110, said in Matthew 22:44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus told the Jerusalem council in Luke 22:69, 69, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of God by the power of God. Ephesians 1.20 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Colossians 1, uh, chapter three, verse one says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, And Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so from all of these passages, we learn what it means for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of God. It means that Jesus has finished the plan of redemption, and has fulfilled his Father's will. It means that Jesus has been given all power and authority over all of his enemies. It means that Jesus indeed is the Messiah who sits on the throne of David and his kingdom will know no end. It means that Jesus is of equal position, equal honor, and equal power, equal authority with God. Well, if this is what it means for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of God, what does it mean for Jesus to be standing at the right hand of God, as we see here in Acts chapter 7? Some would say that Jesus is standing in Stephen's honor. Others would say that Jesus is concerned about Stephen's welfare. Still others would say that Jesus is getting up in order to welcome Stephen home. And while all of these are reasonable possibilities, I believe that there is another reason, a theological reason. I believe that Jesus was standing as a preparation for judgment. With this one simple action, Jesus was confirming his role as sovereign judge over the earth. Think about it. Psalm 110, the passage again says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. This passage in Psalm 110 is teaching us that God the Father is saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies your footstool. This implies that there is a time when Jesus will not be sitting, but that God the Father will send God the Son with his mighty scepter to rule over his enemies. Standing is what the Son of God will do when he comes to judge the earth. Psalm 68 verse 1 says, God shall arise or stand and his enemies shall be scattered And those who hate him will flee before him. This is a posture of judgment. Isaiah 3 verse 13 says, The Lord has taken his place to contend, and he stands to judge the peoples. In standing, we were able to see that Jesus is now glorified in heaven and is preparing to come back to earth to judge unbelievers the nation of Israel was exhausting God's mercy and challenging God's grace. Israel had rejected God the Father. They had rejected Abraham and Joseph and Moses. They had rejected the law and the tabernacle and the temple. And by seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God, Stephen is affirming that Jesus Christ was preparing to come back to earth to pour out his wrath on unbelieving Israel and to unleash his righteous fury on sinful mankind. And Israel's religious leaders were convicted. They had had enough of Stephen and of his Christ Israel's religious leaders proceed to throw Stephen out of Jerusalem and to stone him to death. God's wrath on mankind could have rightly come upon the nation at that very time. But thank God that his wrath was postponed. His wrath was postponed and his judgment of Israel would have to wait for a future date because God's perfect wisdom and timing, it was time for the church to be born. But not only to be born, as this already happened in Pentecost in Acts 2, but for the church to grow from a baby to a toddler, to a teenager, to a young man, to a mature adult. And this marks Acts 7 marks a transition in the book of Acts from God calling Israel to repentance to God now turning to the Gentiles. God had preordained to save Saul of Tarsus, and he would become the apostle Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles. And in order for God to have mercy on Christ rejecting Israel, as well as on all of us as unbelieving Gentiles, God had to to suspend Israel's prophetic program God had a new program a new set of instructions a new covenant one he had in mind from before creation but had kept secret until now this was the mystery discussed in Ephesians 3:6 by Paul who said this mystery is that the gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise In Christ Jesus, through the gospel, God delayed his wrath so that the Gentiles might be grafted in. And for almost 2,000 years now, that wrath has been delayed. The day is coming, though, when the last of the elect will be added to our number. And at that time, the church, the body of Christ, will be called up into heaven And a seven-year tribulation, the last seven years of Satan's reign on planet earth will run its course. At the end of those seven years, Jesus Christ will stand and he will arise from his seated position at the Father's right hand in heaven to fulfill the Old Testament and the New Testament prophecies that describe his second coming, his return to earth in great power and authority. John said in Revelation nineteen eleven, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so this is all a preview of what we're seeing of Jesus standing in Acts 7 to remind us that he is watching and that he does care. And that he is coming back to judge the world. Stephen is getting a little glimpse of how Jesus will set all things right in his time. Jesus is standing to remind us of his faithful promise to come back in power and authority. So fear not, dear Christian. Do not be afraid. Every fiery trial, every bout of persecution... Every faithful martyr's death is a reminder that one day Jesus will stand again and he will come back for his own. And that's why I believe that Jesus is standing. It's a preview of his sovereign power over all things. Yet he waited to come back until you and I would be brought into redemption to finish his plan with the church, that mystery that's now been made known to all of us. This morning, I want us to simply look at three headings as we wrap up Stephen's one and only sermon recorded in the New Testament. Number one, we'll look at how Stephen confronted his listeners. Number two, Stephen preached Christ. To his listeners. And number three, Stephen prayed for his listeners. Let's start with number one. Stephen confronted his listeners, verses 51 through 54. And if you are taking notes, that first subpoint says, You resisted the Holy Spirit. Verse 51, Stephen says, You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Stephen had been preaching his heart out, and now he gets down to business. And just in case the Sanhedrin and the other Jews weren't getting it, he's saying here in verse 51, he's saying, I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to the prophets, your fathers at this moment, though you're following in their footsteps, but I'm, I'm talking to you. You who are here today, you are stiff-necked people. That word stiff-necked means stubborn. It means obstinate. It means to be unyielding, and Stephen is saying that you are not getting it, and you are not changing, so now I am pronouncing judgment upon you, and Stephen says you are uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. In other words, you have not been listening to what God has been saying, and your heart is unchanged. And your heart needs to be softened. Your heart needs to be transformed. Your heart is uncircumcised. It's unrepentant, unapologetic, and it's unregenerated. And then Stephen says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. If you read your Bible as a whole, you understand there are three ways by which the Holy Spirit can be opposed. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be quenched And in this verse we are reading how Stephen is saying that the Holy Spirit can be resisted. In Ephesians 4:30, it talks about how you should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To grieve the Holy Spirit is to cause him emotional pain because of your sin. First Thessalonians 5:19 says, "Do not quench the Spirit. To quench the Holy Spirit is to extinguish or to put out. It means to stifle or to suppress. This is also what we do when we sin. We put a damper on the Holy Spirit's work. And both of those verses were written to believers, to the church of Ephesus and to the church of Thessalonica. Believers are spoken of as grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. But it is unbelievers who are being addressed here in Acts 7 as always resisting the Holy Spirit. There are some who would say that these unbelieving Jews had committed the unpardonable sin. Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty one through 32, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Some would say that as Stephen is addressing his listeners, he's saying, you always resisted the Holy Spirit, and if they did indeed blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then they would have indeed committed the unpardonable sin. These first century Jews were guilty, and they were guilty just as their fathers before them were, and their fathers had rejected Joseph, and they had rejected Moses, and they had rejected the presence of God in the tabernacle and in the temple, and God forbid that our hearts would ever become hard toward the things of God, and this is what Stephen is cautioning and warning and confronting his listeners on. Don't let your heart be like theirs, and yet it already was. And so he's convicting them. And today we need to be reminded of Hebrews three fifteen that tells us. And following it says, and it is said today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts in the rebellion, as in the rebellion for. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt and led, were led by Moses? And with whom has he provoked the, for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and those bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That would be true for you, And for me as well today, that if we would harden our hearts, that we would fall into the same sin and the same judgment that those did in the wilderness and that those are falling into that are confronting Stephen as he's even turning around and confronting them. He's saying, don't rebel against God and his word. You don't have to stay in the wilderness. You can enter his rest today through Jesus Christ by coming to him and by believing in him with all of your heart. And not only... Had the Jews rejected God? But in verse 52, your next blank says that Stephen is confronting them saying, you killed the prophets. You killed the prophets. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Persecution and martyrdom was commonplace among the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Moses was once threatened By stoning by the people, Elijah would have been executed if Jezebel could have laid hands on him. Isaiah is said to have been put into a hollow tree and then sawn in two during the days of Manasseh. Jeremiah was told by God not to marry because no woman ought to share the sufferings that he faced. He was later placed in a slimy pit only to be brought out and eventually stoned to death. Zechariah was martyred between the temple and the altar. When Elijah escaped to Mount Horeb, after God answered by fire on Mount Carmel, God asked him what he was doing there, and Elijah replied in 1 Kings 19.10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts for the people of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away." Second Kings 36 verse 16 says, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 30 says, your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravaging lion. Jesus said to the Jews in Matthew 23, 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus said again in Luke 11, 47 through 48, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them. And so all of these prophets who were killed, they were all announcing the coming of Christ. They were all announcing the coming of the righteous one, which is a reference to the Messiah. Peter had said the same thing in Acts 3 verse 14. He says, but you denied the holy one and the righteous one and then asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And so all of the prophets pointed to the Holy and the Righteous One, but at the end of verse 52, Stephen now directly confronts his listeners, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, he says. All of the unbelieving Jews, when they betrayed Jesus, all of them acted like Judas. They were all guilty of betraying Christ. They were all guilty of the responsibility of of asking and even begging for the murder of Christ so in verse 53, Stephen then says, You disobeyed the law. You disobeyed the law. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. As you know, the law was given on Mount Sinai. The law was continually given throughout the Pentateuch. God used angels to some degree in the giving of the law. We looked last week at Galatians 3.19, which says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And so we know that the law it was somehow was delivered by angels, but the law was given to show us our sin. The law was to be a tutor, to show us our need for Christ. And salvation never came from keeping the law, But the law reflected on God's holy character and served as a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And Christ was to be an end of the old covenant and to set up a new covenant. And with the new covenant came a new law, the law of Christ. And Stephen is once again repeating what Jesus had said to these same leaders in John 5, 46. For if you believe Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. So Moses wrote about Jesus in the law, and if these followers of the Judaism uh, religion would have been true followers of the God of creation and the God of Moses, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then they would have listened to Christ. They would have followed Christ. They would have never killed all of the prophets who pointed to Christ. But these leaders had no real respect for Moses or the law, or they would have never murdered the one that Moses had promised that would come after him. And Jesus said in John 7:19, "Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me?" I would say, "Well, what a shame. Here are the Israelites thinking they've been so holy, so dedicated to following the law, and yet Jesus says, "None of you keeps it. None of you have kept the law. We understand there that they haven't kept the law perfectly. And we also understand that they've added to the law their own man-made laws, which is legalism. And so in verses 51 through 53, Stephen speaks with incredible boldness. He speaks with precision. He is now applying the text of Scripture directly to his listener's situation. You know, sometimes popular evangelists and pastors will say things like, Why preach about sin? Or I just want to give the good news of Jesus. Or I don't want to turn people off. I want to make them feel good about themselves. And so much of today's preaching is so watered down that it has no gospel content. No conviction. No truth. No real meaning. You know, you can water down soup to the point that it has no taste You can water down the message of the gospel to where it is no longer salty. The problem is that you and I are to be the salt of the earth. We're to be the light of the world. We're to preach like the prophets preached. And we're to preach like Jesus preached. And we're to preach like the New Testament apostles preached. We're to preach like Stephen's preaching. We're to preach truth and grace. We are to preach about sin and we are to preach about the Savior. We are to preach about life and we are to preach about death. So let me ask you this morning have you been watering down the truth? Have you been afraid to talk about heaven and hell? Have you been faithful to go and tell it on the mountain? Are you faithful, as one verse from O come. O come, Emmanuel says, one verse says, O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From the depths of hell, your people save and give them victory over the grave. I like it. It's a Christmas carol about hell. That's what I'm saying. This is a season not only to be all of the sprinkles and all of the, you know, whatever, all of the glitter, right? But it's like, hey, you know what? The season is to save people like you from hell. That's why we sing this song. That's what O Come, O Come Emmanuel says. Or are you being faithful to tell people about Christmas? The real meaning of Christmas is that they need to be born again. That's what Hark the Herald Angels Sing talks about. It reminds us in one verse of that Christmas hymn, Mild he lay his glory by, Born that men may no more die, Born to raise the sons of earth, Born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christmas songs are about being born again. That's what they're about. It's about you not going to hell, and it's about you being born again. Are you being faithful to tell people this Christmas about the resurrection, like we three kings of Orient are? Listen to the last two verses. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrow, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Glorious now, behold him, arise, king and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah, sounds through the earth and skies. Don't you like Christmas songs? They're about hell. They're about being born again, and they're about the resurrection. That's why we sing them, and it's all the content is there in so many of these incredible Christmas songs. And I just want to remind you, as you're singing them, focus on that. I mean, yes, I like focusing on the little baby. Who doesn't like a beautiful baby? But with that baby comes the whole package of redemption and our whole need of Him. And Stephen is unashamedly, unapologetically, and unabashedly preaching the gospel of Christ faithfully. And so should we be. And oh, what a season it is where we can be doing that more than ever. Well, how did Stephen's listeners respond? Verse 54, your next blank says, and they were enraged at him. They were enraged when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So when you sing those Christmas carols, don't expect everybody to give you presents, right? If you focus on what Stephen's focusing on, they may be upset as you, as, at you as well. When, when they heard all of that Stephen had to say in his sermon and when Stephen confronted them directly, then they were enraged. This word means that they were infuriated. The NASB translates the word as, they were cut to the quick. The word literally means that they were sawed through. In our vernacular today, they were beside themselves. And this same word is used in Acts 5.33 to describe how they felt when the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Needless to say, they weren't responding well. When Peter preached the gospel in Acts 2, some responded better when they said, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized, and thousands of people were saved. Later in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17, verse 32 says, now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. But this crowd here in Acts 7 wasn't having any more of it. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. We hear about this kind of behavior even back in Psalm 35, verse 16, like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. Or listen to Psalm 37, verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. It's describing this extreme anger and revulsion to whatever message is being delivered. Possibly you're even more familiar with the grinding or gnashing of teeth from Jesus' description of what will become of those who suffer in hell. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, Jesus describes the horrors of hell in Matthew 13, 42, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Sanhedrin had heard the truth. They had heard Jesus' teaching and they had witnessed his miracles. They had also heard the preaching of the apostles and seen the miracles that they performed. But because of their continual rejection, Stephen did not give them an invitation, but he gave them an indictment, one that filled them with rage. They gnashed their teeth on that day, and perhaps most of them are doing the same thing today in hell. The grinding of teeth possibly is previewing previewing what they will be doing for the rest of eternity. The suffering of hell will include the endless anger and frustration of those people who will forever feel intense anger toward God. People who reject God's grace and love will feel no remorse under his judgment. In fact, it will make them even angrier. The angriest place you could ever be is not on the side of the team that lost the game or on the side of the lover who has been spurned, are on the side of the country who lost the war. But the saddest, most angry, difficult place you could ever be would be on the wrong side of the great divide with all of those who are in hell. Hell is not a happy place. It is not a place to party. It's not a place where you can express yourself however you want. It is a place of darkness and of misery And of isolation and pain and anger, so much so that those who will be there will gnash their teeth forever. Merry Christmas. (laughs) That's just a reminder, right? That's what they're doing. They're gnashing their teeth at Stephen. That's what they'll be doing apart from God's grace in hell for all eternity. And so now that we've seen that Stephen has confronted his listeners. Let's now see how, number two, Stephen preached Christ to his listeners. In verses 55 through 58, your next blank there in verse 55 said that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. First part of verse 55, but he, referring to Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. And again, we're seeing incredible contrasts. They were resisting the Holy Spirit all the time. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit while his listeners were full of rage. He is full of peace. While they are full of anger and hostility, he is full of the goodness of God. While they are full of the hatred of men. And we see this twice already about Stephen's character. Acts 6.3 talks about what kind of men were needed to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And then in Acts 6.5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled By the Spirit. It means to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It means that you are doing what you're doing not in your own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And please note, Stephen did not start speaking in some unknown language. Stephen did not start in this moment naming and claiming things. Stephen did not command God to do something. That's not what it means to be full of the Spirit. Stephen continued, rather, to preach the gospel and to pray for those who were persecuting them. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of godly living in a believer's life, and God also provides special grace when needed, especially in times of crisis. Just like what Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 11 and 12, he says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself in, in what you shall say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Well, how true it is that over the course of the history of the church and so many accounts that I've read about martyrs going to their death, many of the English reformers who were burned at the stake, it was said of them that they had such a calm and such a peace and such an eternal joy that it was almost as if they were marching to their wedding instead of to their execution. The special grace that God provides in your deepest, darkest moment when you have no idea of how in the world that you'll ever make it through. God's grace always shines through. And Stephen demonstrates that as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He has a kind of holy resolve. He is simply submitting to God, and then he gazed into heaven. Your next blank there says Stephen was looking to heaven. So he's full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. A spirit-filled Christian is always looking to Jesus. Even in the midst of this extremely chaotic and life-threatening time, Stephen gazed intently into heaven. Colossians 3.1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is. Stephen was doing this literally. What a blessing and encouragement this must have been. When all else is lost, Stephen is looking to heaven. Stephen is one of those very few people in the Bible who have ever had the incredible privilege of actually looking into heaven. Isaiah had a vision of heaven with the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Ezekiel saw the beauty of heaven, and there he saw the glory of the Lord that was seated upon a throne. The apostle Paul was called up into the third heaven, to which he had saw and heard things that which he said could not no man may utter. And John looked in and saw the doors of heaven standing wide open, to which he heard a voice speaking to him like a trumpet saying, come up here and I will show you what, much, what must take place after this. And so as Stephen directed his gaze away from the clamoring mob into heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus there at the right hand of the Father. The true sanctuary in heaven was opened for view, and Jesus was standing to register His applause, his approval, his well done, thou good and faithful servant. And in just a few more minutes, Stephen would be there absent from the body, but present with the Lord. But first, he must bear one final witness to the nation of Israel and its leaders, now set irrevocably on a collision course with judgment. And so we see Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He was looking up into heaven, and then next we see that Stephen was affirming Christ's words. Verse 56, Stephen was affirming Christ's words. Look what he says here. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In verse 55, he saw it. In verse 56, he talked about what he saw. In this verse, he's just stating exactly what he is actually seeing in heaven. Now, I say in the outline that Stephen is affirming Christ's words. Many in the court that day had been present a few years earlier when Jesus was on trial. And Caiaphas, the high priest, as you remember, asked Jesus directly, are you the Christ? You remember how Jesus replied in Mark 14, 62? He said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And now here we are, just a few years later, and Stephen is seeing at least part of this prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is referring to him himself as the Son of Man, and more than any other designated title in the Bible, that's how Jesus likes to describe himself. In fact, over 80 times in the Gospels, he uses this phrase to refer to Christ. The title, the Son of Man, was First designated by Daniel in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which says, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So, in this text, it talks about how Jesus, the Son of Man, would come to God the Father who is the Ancient of Days, and presented himself before the Father. And the Father, in return, would give Christ dominion and glory and a kingdom that will never pass away. And all peoples and nations and ethnicities should serve the Messiah and his kingdom and will never, it will never be destroyed. And so it is at this point where the unbelieving Jews could stand it no more. So they say in verses 57 to 58, um, they, they respond by stoning him they stone him. They heard what Stephen is saying. Stephen is saying, hey, look, Jesus told us that he would show himself at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is now standing at the right hand of the Father. The Son of Man, who Daniel talked about, is here with all of his power and dominion. And so Stephen's vision and the description of seeing Jesus at the right hand of the Father, that was what was more than the Jews could bear. Not only their confrontation, but his exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his rightful place, Jesus claimed that he would be at the right hand of God. And now Stephen, again, is asserting that he is there. So the sanhedrin had to now either execute Stephen too, or it meant that they were wrong when they crucified Jesus. So Stephen is saying the same thing Christ said, and they needed to treat him in the same way that they had treated Christ. And so they decided to suppress the truth by silencing Stephen. They cried out with loud voices, and they stuck their fingers in their ears, and they rushed together at Stephen. Just as the nation of Israel had worked together to crucify the Messiah, they would now work together to crush this faithful preacher. This word, rushed, describes a headlong, rapid movement that will not be denied. There was an awful haste. There was an angry fury about their movements. This word is the same word used to describe the mad rush of the herd of demon-possessed swine who ran down the hill into the Sea of Galilee. It was also used to describe the frenzied mob that rushed into the theater in Ephesus demanding to harm Paul. They had lost it, and casting aside all dignity and honor, the highest court of the land was reduced to a howling, murderous mob. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned Stephen to death. The Mishnah, which is the writings of the rabbis giving commentary on the Bible and other teachings, records that procedure of stoning that was to take place of an individual. First, the victim was to be pushed off a 10-foot high ledge. If that didn't kill him, then the first witness was to drop a large stone on his heart. If he survived that, the second witness then dropped another stone on him. And since Stephen was still able to call out to Jesus one more time, it is doubtful whether the stoning was that orderly. Most likely, this is the scene of uncontrollable angry people who are pushing and shoving and throwing rocks one after another at Stephen notice they took Stephen outside the city according to Levitical law in the same way Hebrews 13:12 says so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood and then verse 58, again, they cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We see there that reference to Saul. Remember, Saul's name would be changed to Paul. And thus, a new emphasis would begin with bringing salvation to the Gentiles. So Stephen confronted his listeners Stephen preached Christ to his listeners, and now we see, number three, that Stephen prayed for his listeners. Verse 59, he prayed to Jesus. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen's last words proclaimed the deity of Jesus Christ. Lord, Master, receive my spirit. And when Jesus died, remember he had said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just as Jesus committed his spirit to the Father, so does Stephen commit his spirit to the Son, which again places the Son and the Father on equal footing. In this way, Stephen is acknowledging the fact that Jesus indeed was co-equal with the Father. This also points to the fact that Jesus is the author of life and the victor over death. Stephen was on the verge of leaving this world to go to the next. And so he spoke words here that Saul surely never forgot. In fact, later, Paul took these words and formalized them as led by the Holy Spirit into one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Christians don't believe in reincarnation. Christians don't believe in soul sleep. Christians don't believe in purgatory. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, it says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Stephen demonstrated that in a narrative. Paul preached that in an epistle we understand that when we die for the Christian, those that are in Christ will immediately be ushered into the presence of Christ. And so Stephen is praying to Jesus. And then in verse 60, we see that that Stephen prayed for his persecutors. He prayed for his persecutors. There in verse 60, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's last words were a window into Christian grace and an echo of Jesus' words on the cross. Luke 23, 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so Stephen also models and applies the Lord's teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this, in a sense, was a prayer for his persecutor's salvation. Since that's the only way that their sins could truly be forgiven. And with this, he fell asleep. This is a reference to the fact that Stephen died, and peaceably and calmly entered into the presence of the Lord. Sleep is a lovely way to describe the death of a believer. And you know what also made this so peaceful was that Stephen went to his grave without any bitterness. There was no unforgiveness in his heart. There was no revenge. There was no resentment. There was no grief. It's a beautiful thing when a Christian doesn't hold on to grudges in his life or in his death. Stephen truly modeled what is taught in Ephesians 4.31-32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If God gave Stephen the ability to do that in his death, certainly God will give you the same power to do that in your life. You ever thought about how Stephen passed, he just let it all go, and maybe you're here today and you're hanging on to something that somebody's done against you, and you're upset. You've been hurt. And you've been storing up bitterness in your heart for far too long. And all I'm saying is if the Stephen can let it go here in his death, then certainly you can let it go in your life. Dear Christian, it's Christmas season. You should be holding nothing against anyone ever. Look up into heaven and be reminded of the glories of Christ. Look at Stephen's example. Be encouraged. Be inspired today. That you can be forgiven, and that you can forgive others in the same way. If you could pass from this life into the next with total peace and tranquility, because you know that you've obeyed God with His help in all areas of your life. Well, as we reflect on the similarities between Stephen and Jesus, one commentator wrote, "Quote: Both in life and in death, Stephen was so much like his Lord. Jesus was filled with the Spirit." So was Stephen. Jesus was full of grace. So was Stephen. Jesus boldly confronted the religious establishment of his day. So did Stephen. Jesus was convicted by lying witnesses. So was Stephen. Jesus had a mock trial. So did Stephen. Jesus was executed through the innocent, uh, though innocent of any crime. So was Stephen. Both were accused of blasphemy. Both died outside of the city and both prayed for the salvation of their executors. Was there ever a man more like Jesus? Been an amazing sermon, hasn't it? The Sermon of Stephen. So many things that we could learn and take home with us this this morning. Just look at that take home section there at the bottom of your outline. How can you effectively confront those in sin around you? I told you one way to do it is by singing Christmas carols. You can do it if you emphasize of what it's really about. And of course, I'm not saying do that in a vindictive, mean-spirited way. I told one group of people that in my college years we would go caroling. I think it's a lovely way to be a gospel witness. And I had one professor who was an atheist in our junior college. So I found out where he lived. (laughs) Me and all my carolers showed up at his front doorstep and we sang, Oh, come, let us adore him. We sang it over and over again. We just kept enjoying so much. So, but how can you effectively confront those in sin around you? I want to encourage you that throughout this Christmas season, I'm sure that you want to give all of the, the beauties of the, of the generosity of the season, but there can also be a real conversation about the realities of heaven and hell, that God would embolden you to lean into that a little bit this Christmas. Number two, how do you preach Christ every day with your life and with your words? Certainly we see it modeled by Stephen and certainly we wanna use our words to point people back to Christ, back to scripture, back to the true meaning. We don't wanna water down the message of Christmas, but we wanna stand firm and bold and point people to the Christ of Christmas. And then third, how do you pray for your enemies and for those who persecute you? Maybe you have a lot to think about here at the very end of the sermon about how you need to forgive those who have sinned against you in the same way Stephen has, or just to pray for the enemies that you face at work or in your family or as you look forward to hanging out with family over the holidays or you don't look forward to hanging out with family over the holidays, that you would have extra grace in your heart and to love them any way because that's what Christ has done for you. And so as we wrap up this morning, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ and you've never seen The beauty of heaven, as Stephen describes this morning, we want to invite you today into a personal relationship with Jesus, that you would look at God's word this morning and just see his love for you, his desire to give his life for you, that you would be drawn into a personal relationship with him, that you would deny all the pleasures of this world and to realize that everything else is a distant second. To the joy of knowing Christ. And so I'm inviting you this morning as we finish our last song, we'll have a few people standing by that back door. If you want to come into a personal relationship with Christ, we're inviting you to do that. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've just been encouraged by some of the songs that we've sung or something out of the passage this morning just struck you and you want to talk to somebody, you want to pray with somebody, we invite you to come as well as this is an opportunity for us during this special season to talk about what God's doing in our hearts and how he's changing our lives lives, and that we would reflect again on what it is that makes Jesus stand. He cares for you, he loves you, but he's coming back in judgment. So we want to make sure that we're ready for that great day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of seeing Stephen's sermon and just kind of wrapping up all these wonderful truths that we've spent several weeks in. I pray this morning, God, that you would especially help us to think through the authenticity of Stephen's sermon the boldness of his confrontation, the resolve to continue to preach Christ right into his death, the prayer that he prayed for those who were persecuting him. Help us as we think about these things and meditate on these things to follow in a similar example. We want to follow Stephen only as he follows Christ. We've seen how clear of a picture of following that is throughout these last few weeks together. God, I pray that you would bless us, throughout the rest of this day and the weeks to come, that we would walk in the joy of Christmas and that we would preach the gospel of Christmas and that we would always point people to the Christ of Christmas. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.